Are you a service-based business owner looking to increase profits to fund your lifestyle? Well, this podcast is for you. We bring you inspirational guests sharing actionable tips to solve many of the struggles you face each and every day. And now, over to your host, Paul Higgins. Welcome to the Build, Lead, Give podcast. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. And if you'd love to subscribe, that would be great. If you're a regular, thanks for your support. Why not email me some feedback at paul at buildlivegive.com. I would absolutely love it. It means the world to me when you give me some feedback. So today's guest is someone that has had 30 jobs. That's right, 30 jobs. And what they attributed to is they wanted to find out what really filled their tank. So what's something that they could do day in and day out and be truly passionate about it. And it took them quite some time to find that. But for the last 16 years, they've helped companies really find out who they are. Okay. And they do it with evidence based and they talk about it in their book that is about to release. They also challenge me on what I say about, well, all consultants are exactly the same or very similar. We all do a similar thing. So the guest really challenges me on that. And he also gives you some great examples of companies that thought they were something when they realized they were something else and just the huge financial impact that had on their business. So what I'll do now is hand you over to David Charles from Living Blueprint, who gives you a fantastic understanding of who you really are. Welcome, David Charles from Living Blueprint to the Build, Live, Give podcast. Great to have you on, David. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so you're in uh, not-so-hot Canada at the moment, is that right? Well, I choose wisely where I'm in Canada, but I went to the one little pocket on the left-hand side, which is always warm. So I'm in Vancouver. Ah, I grew I grew up in Calgary, and I decided that minus thirty and minus forty wasn't meant for hairless mammals. So I, I yeah, I, I didn't want to stay in that by any means. So we get snow here once every couple of years, and it lasts about a day. Right, and so what so is yeah, it today? Well, what's the temperature tonight? I don't know the temperature, but it's clear blue skies and uh, warm enough for a very small jacket. Okay, beautiful. Fantastic. Not what I think about uh, when I talk to Canadians in in winter. So, uh, you know, I've uh, spoken to you a few times. I can't wait for this interview. We had a great pre-conversation. But why don't we kick off with something that your family or friends would know about you that we may not? So I dug up something. You know, I asked my wife that question yesterday. I said, you know, I was going to ask this question. What would you say? So she brought up a film festival I was in. What I didn't know was when her and I first met, she found that and thought it was great. And maybe that's one of the reasons we're actually together. But the thing that I thought was actually more interesting, and as you and I were talking about, was I lived in Kuala Lumpur for a few years in Malaysia. And I had this girlfriend at the time, a Chinese girl, and she was trying unsuccessfully to teach me Chinese. And the way that we approached it was I was a musician, so she would teach me how to sing songs that I liked from famous Chinese bands. So she taught me this song. It was the most famous song from the most famous band in China called Beyond. And one of the reasons they're super famous is their singer actually fell off stage and died live on TV which is kind of somber. I get that. But that was the end of that band, which is absolutely bizarre. But they were the Guns N' Roses of China for a long time. So I learned this song and 
It's a song for his mother and it sounds great and it's catchy and all of that. And so I learned the whole thing. So one night I'm out with all of my friends, all Chinese friends, and we're in this Chinese rock club. And I'm the only white guy for like a thousand miles. This was 20 years ago in Kuala Lumpur. There wasn't a lot of white people back then. They were around, yes, but there wasn't a lot. So I could go a week or a month without seeing another white person. And I live downtown. So anyway, I'm in this club with all my friends. And there was a soft point where and we were sitting in the back in like a club seat. And I noticed that my friends were talking to the band on stage. And then I kept hearing Kwai Lo, which is white person in Chinese. So I'm like, oh, God, this isn't good. <laughs> so the spotlight comes on us. And then my friends start, go, 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 go. And so I get dragged on the stage. They give me a guitar. The lead singer stands aside and he says, okay, you know how to play this song? Let's go. And the band just started. And I am not a singer by any stretch, but I sang the entire song with a full band to a nightclub with probably four or 500 people in it. And I'm not being modest. It was terrible. It absolutely was. I did not know the guitar solo and the, the lead guitarist was like standing out of the way. He's like, you do it. I'm like, oh, man. So that happened. And I, you know what? It's one of these things that I'm glad that I'm 47 because if that happened now, it would be all over the internet. You, that's exactly Forever. what I was going to say. There would be video evidence of that for sure. And I had forgot about it for years. And then, you know, every once in a while, I just, and I remembered it like a year ago. And I'm like, my first thought was, did I, did that actually happen? Because I actually did, do believe my brain tried to erase that out. But no, it actually did. happened. I did well, sing a full song in Chinese. To well, for I think for your 50th, you need to, to recreate it. I think that's yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. the Go challenge. It's laid down. Yeah. If you want uh, yeah. David to recreate it, just email David. He'll we'll have his yeah. email address in the show notes and uh, we can get him and he can share it with us. Exclusive well, one, for the building yeah. community. Well, one thing I found a few years ago, and then we'll get off this topic, but it's ridiculous. I found a few years ago, there's a white guy who sang that song and made a video of it and put it on YouTube. And he's got tens of millions of views. And I was like, copied me somehow. But no, some guy did the exact same song. And he's got, when I saw it, it was like 20 million views. Could he sing that? And no, no, he was but, just as bad as me. Go. There you go. Yeah. There you go. There's your opportunity. No. So, so obviously you've talked about, you know, being a musician and I can see the guitar yeah. in the background there and all of us can. So tell me, you know, musician, animation, then into yeah. helping companies. Tell us all about that journey mm -hmm. and in what would take me as an Australian to drink a beer. Oh, God. <laughs> it's not long. Is that, like, no, I figured. <laughs> you know, it, it was the endless pursuit to find a full tank of gas for me. I've always been fascinated by someone like Paul McCartney, who he just released an album. Yeah. And he's, I don't, I can't, I don't know how old he is, but he's been, he's like 78 or something like that. Yeah. He's pushing 80. He's been doing this for almost 50 years. He just released an album and he's figured out a way to exist in the world by capitalizing on exactly who he is, what he's extremely good at, what he loves to do, what he's relentless at. He and, and Lennon wrote like 300 songs and they said they never had a dry session. They always came out with something. And people love buying it. You know, his concerts sell out globally instantly. So I've been on a quest and I didn't know this for a long time. But the reason that I've had 30 plus different jobs is because that's what I've been looking. So when I did music, and I know you're on your second beer now, but the gist of it was, what's a full tank of gas for me? How do I find that? So when I did animation, I'm like, well, I don't write the script and I don't have it in me to write the script. Next. When I did music, I'm not a songwriter. And as we've discussed, my voice isn't great. Next. <laughs> 
So all of these things that I convinced myself as a child that I should do, as we all do, I tried them all, which I think is a gift. And I did that. But I was looking for which one will I never shut up about? Which one can I sell, love to sell, easily sell, and endlessly reproduce and have content and bring stuff out of me? That is why I've gone through all of these different things, because none of them had that. None of them. Until I found what is in my book right here, Monster. Once I found that, which came through consulting, I found that I can figure things out. I can deeply understand who human beings and businesses are. And it's something that I'm involved with, I'm interested in. And it's about self-actualization and self-awareness without getting self-helpy. But I'm really good at helping companies figure out exactly who they are, where they fit into the world and capitalizing on it. And I had no idea that was a discipline. I had no idea it was a career. I found it because I tried about 35 different things. Was that three beers or two in Australia? Look, I'd have to say three. It depends <laughs> if we were having pints or schooners, but it's... Uh, bigger one. The, the yeah. schooner, I think, is the bigger well, one. Yeah. Look, I think, you know, that leads us beautifully into the build section. And, you know, so you briefly touched on it, but when someone, you know, walks up to a part or in a party, walks up to you and says, hey, David, what do you do for a living? How do you best describe mm-hmm. that? It's funny because if you describe what we do wrong, you instantly sound like a wizard or a self-help guru with no credentials. But we help companies very deliberately understand exactly how they got to where they are and capitalize on it so they can grow exponentially. It's probably the shortest I can say. And when you say companies, like which, what type mm-hmm. of companies? You know, when I started my business, I think it was 16 years ago, I got a lot of advice from people saying, well, you should focus on one market. You know, it should be real estate or this or that. or And I never liked that. I never thought that was a good idea. I surely understand it. But my thought back then was, okay, so I study auto companies or book companies or whatever. I thought, well, okay, all I'm going to do is I'm going to build up a wealth of knowledge. However, I'm also going to build up a bias, which means I'm going to take that bias in with all of my clients and make them all feel and look the same. The biggest problem with that is I'm going to leave them out of the contract they hired me for. And I'm just going to fit them into the market as another number, another tube of toothpaste on the aisle. So I didn't want to do that deliberately. So if we target companies, we actually don't target a sector of companies. What we target are decision makers within organizations or teams at a specific point in their history where they realize they can overtake their competitors or they have way more to offer and they don't know how to tap into it or they're running really quick. We had one client, it was a billion dollar company and thousands of employees. And when I met Christian after like five or six rounds of pitching to his entire executive team, after we were hired, he said, look, we're growing really fast. I want to know that we know who we are. Can you help us with that? And that's what we did. We verified and added on to and added clarity. They didn't know how to say it before because they're the fastest growing retailer in British Columbia and arguably coming up upon Canada. They're outselling everybody. So the quest was why? Now think about this. They sell, when you sell Porsche or whatever it is, every Porsche dealership has to be owned in a region by a different owner. That's how they do it. And a lot of car companies do this. Meaning if there's three Porsche vendors in Vancouver, they can't all be owned by one person. Because and, what's re- doesn't and what's the reason for that? I think it's about fairness to the consumer. Right. But I actually, and it's a good question, and I don't honestly know the answer, but I think it has something to do with monopolies and all that kind of business and yeah, just keeping okay. business fair, but you can't own them all. But now let's look at that. 
they don't set the price for the car. They don't do the advertising for the car. They don't design the showroom for the car. They don't do anything other than present it to sale. So they sell the same car to the same people in the same place at the same price in the same roof, same salespeople, same everything. Because they all train their salespeople. Of course, it trains the salespeople now. So everything is equal except for one thing. They outpace and outgrow everybody for every brand they sell. So then it's like, okay, there's something going on here. Yeah. They're different. What is that? And you can't find that by looking at the competitors. You cannot find that by looking at market reports. Although we did look at market reports to figure out, well, what's normal, what's abnormal. But it was, we had to dig through and say, well, there is something different here because everything is the same except the results. And that, or if you really think about that, that is about embodying who and what you are as an organization. What are your actual beliefs and how do they feel like? Because really every product or, or every decision, every process you have is a direct and complete reflection of your values, whether you understand it or not. Everything is value-based. Hitler was values-based. I don't agree with his values. I think he was a little off but he was values-based. He absolutely was. Donald Trump is values-based. Coca-Cola, values-based. Whether you know it and accept it and understand it or not is irrelevant. And those values were why they were growing and outpacing everybody in this region, hands down. And we isolated exactly what stood out, what was unique to them, and we turned that into their platform. And I know they've grown significantly since that, but they were on that trajectory anyway. So for me to say they went up by this amount, I will never claim ownership because they were going to do that anyway. But what Christian said was the confidence they had after this process made them move harder, faster, and more deliberately because and, they knew. Yeah. And, and sorry, David, uh, you know, we yeah. sort of talked. Sorry, I went on a rant there. I no, that's fine. You talked about, you know, we, we've talked about in the past around you know, what people think their core values are versus is yes. what they actually are. There's a difference. So in, in Christian's yes. case, what did he think they were versus what did the evidence, your research, your special source come up with? And you don't have to be exactly yeah. specific here, but just in general, it'd be great to know. It's a curious one with them because they, it was, they did kind of know, we affirmed for them a lot of what they thought about themselves. We do have more dramatic cases where, and actually for them, because it was more affirmation, they were growing fast because on a certain level, they knew who they were, but they couldn't articulate it. They didn't know the words to say. And because there were so many different voices, there was a lot of disagreements, but it wasn't that they were off necessarily. So I'd actually like to talk about a slightly different company that yeah, we were sure, with, that completely off. And we have a testimonial video on our website, which is where I can put numbers in because the owner of the company himself put numbers in. We didn't know the numbers until we put a camera on his face and said, Quentin, what happened? And he said they grew by 28% and he accredited it to us and it's an airline. And the thing was, it was a succession process because he had taken over from his father. It's a family business. And he inherited his father's way of doing business, which was top-down. And he inherited an entire executive team. And in a top-down team, you, to a certain degree, do what you're told, to a certain degree, because it's top-down. We're going over there. I need you to do this. That's basically top-down. Now, the freedom of how are you going to do this depends on the person in control, how much freedom they give you. So I won't touch on any of that. But generally speaking, top-down is I'm going there and you're going to help me get there. So that's what he inherited with a team of executives for 40 years 
who did the bidding of that. And it was definitely not bad. I mean, they built a substantial company. They absolutely did. So I don't want to paint a negative picture by any means. It's just that Quentin was more bottom up. He wanted to go, well, what do we have? Who is on my team? What did they, are there things that they know that I don't know? How can we leverage this? How can we bring the best out in people? And I don't want to say that one is better than the other because a complete totalitarian dictatorship is bad and they didn't have that. Yes. And a complete, you know, just throwing your arms up and saying, what do we all want to do? That doesn't work either. You have to have, you know, somebody pointing at the horizon saying, that's where we're going. And then it comes down to working with your team. So as I worked with this team, I didn't have the processes I have now. I want to be clear on that. This was a long time ago. I didn't have the processes. So I was, but I still do the same thing. I just, I'm much more formal with it. And we found out a lot of truths about their company. So for instance, they believed that all of their money was made through taking vacationers to vacation. So all of 100% of their marketing budget was into what we learned 10% of their market who would have left for $5. So for instance, you go on a, an airline website and you click renew, 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 and the price either goes up or down, right? We found out that those 10% of people, they'd leave for five bucks. They were non-committal. If Air Canada was cheaper, they'd go on Air Canada. If the coastal was cheaper, they'd go, it didn't matter. But we put 100% of revenue for marketing into that for decades. Big two-page spreads in the yellow pages, which I don't know if you've ever bought, like in the yellow pages, it was an enormous amount of money every month. So what I helped them discover was when Daryl started the company, he was a logger who couldn't get to work and he lived in a remote place. And one day he went to work and there was an airplane for sale. So he bought it. He was not a pilot. And I don't want to get the number wrong, but I believe he became a commercial pilot in like a ridiculous amount of time, like a month or two, which is unheard of. But he had the money. The tarmacs were full of people and there was no place. So he just kept buying airplanes and acquiring pilots. And he was taking people to work, forestry, fishery, logging, all of these things. And as we were going through the non-process that I had then, what we found was 80% of their revenue came from businesses or government. It came from getting people to work. And once we understood that, we changed the tagline of people friendly, people first. Nobody cared about that. So we're in the business of British Columbia. And then I used to be a cartographer, one of my 35 jobs. Yeah. I made this beautiful map for them where I articulated all of their 65 plus destinations that they fly to with their float division and their wheel division, which before that, they said they flew to 12 airports, but they actually flew to 65 plus destinations, which was crazy, which also explained why they were the sixth largest carrier in Canada at the time. So once we flipped it to we're in the business of British Columbia and we built a sales kit for them, their salespeople, all they had to do was look at all the forestry, all the businesses around and say, do they fly with us or not? And if they didn't, they just had to walk in with the map and say, by the way, this is exactly what we do. And, you know, I noticed that you have an operation here. Did you know that we fly around that every Tuesday and every Thursday and we can just pick you up? And now instead of chartering an airplane, you can fly on regular scheduled flights, which is astonishingly cheaper. Mm -hmm. Their revenue went up by 28% with zero marketing virtually overnight. Quentin says it was a two-year period, which is incorrect. And the reason I can firmly say that is I checked the data. When we came out with We're in the Business of British Columbia and when we recorded the video, six months. Really? So by him going to his audience who already knew why they flew with him and not saying, come fly with us, we're cheap, but saying, you have an operation here. We're going right beside it every Tuesday. Fly with us. 
And I help them package all of their rates, like Bravo Classic and Encore, we named and branded the different fare types and all of that. We put all that around. So, And I remember talking with their sales guy and he said, it would be crazy if I could sell all three packages. Because like, you get the economy flying where it's cheap, but there's no benefits. You get the really expensive flying, you get on any flight, do anything you want. His first sale was like a reasonable amount from a company in every single package. Biggest sale he'd ever done in his life. Because... The market knows what you are, whether you know it or not. They know why they fly you, whether they can articulate it or not. And by them telling people the wrong thing that nobody cared about, it was just noise. And it never meant anything. It never did anything for them. By coming back and saying, here's the map. This is exactly what we do. This is exactly why we do it. Here's all the evidence. Here's the proof. Revenue went straight up. So look, brilliant, brilliant example. So, you know, I'm a service-based business owner. I'm a consultant. Like you said, the, yeah. you know, uh, people are picking me based on my values and personality in a lot of cases, because what I do is similar mm-hmm. to other people. We all think it's different, but it, you know, in effect, it's mm-hmm. pretty similar. You know, your book that's sitting there in the, the background, how much of your methodology, like how much could I apply of your methodology based on mm-hmm. reading your book to achieve that? Because I know, you know often yeah. I say to people, you know, what's your uh, unique point of difference? Because I think that's hard to describe, but, you know, what is your point of difference? People find it hard to articulate that. Does your book that's coming out, I think, in quarter one, 21, does that help? Yeah, does that help answer Absolutely. That? Yes. And the reason it's got the word ideology in it is specific. So I want to challenge you on a couple of things here. The words you were using there, we're all pretty similar. We all do a lot of the same things. And you were talking around that angle. Yes. I'm not going to go personal here, but I'm going to use a personal example. Yeah. Is your wife the same as every other woman? And could you easily swap her out because she's a woman and they're a woman? No. No. Our businesses are no different. You are no different. We are no different. We are taught to believe in business. A lot of the things that you were saying, and I, and I don't want to attack, I'm just saying, yeah. this is the ideology, is we are fundamentally different. And the differences are astonishingly slight and we can prove it. And the ideology is about if you subscribe to, we are all the same. It's all been done before. I do believe that's a losing proposition. And the reason being is that does one thing, all it leaves you out. Yes. Because if we are all the same, which is absolutely untrue, why are there so much dramatic differences in how we operate? On the outside, Apple, Samsung, you could say they're exactly the same, but look at their results of what they did. Look at the new M1 chip. This new fellow running Apple might just be the next Steve Jobs for what he did with the chip technology. He might actually be the next Steve Jobs. He might actually change the world. The reason that him, sorry, what is his name? I'm losing it. The new leader of Apple, brilliant man. Tim? Tim, Tim Cook. Tim Cook, brilliant. The difference between him is slight. So the reason the M1 chip came about was he went to NVIDIA and said, I have a different way of building a chip on a specific type of methodology. I want you to do it. And they said, no. And he said, look, I want phones to be faster than computers. It's just a saying. It's just a thing. But he said, I want the phones to be faster than computers. And NVIDIA said, I don't think there's a reason for that. So he walked away from them. They missed something important. If a phone is faster than a computer and then you put the chip in the computer, you've just taken over the planet, which is what Apple is arguing doing right now. Again, when you come back and if you say we're all basically the same, it's not true. We are vastly different in things that look the same. We can sound the same. And it's so easy for me to erase myself out of my own business 
and just say I'm the same as everyone else. And and I can touch on that because I did that. So where where I sorry, where where do we want to go now? I mean, that was do, do you see what I'm saying about yeah. that every consulting business is vastly different. When you look at the complexity of your background, Paul, and what you bring to the world, how you think, how you operate, how you talk, how you pull things out of people, I suggest. But that's only 50% of your practice. The other 50% is the receiving end, the world, how it responds, what it needs from you, what it wants from you. And when you add all of that up, the likelihood of you being the same as your competitor is almost zero. Yeah, that's great. Now, for people that have either got poor eyesight or if you're listening audio, you're not listening to the video, it is Monster, your billion dollar ideology. So by David Charles, and it will come out, he's promised us here that it will come out in quarter one, 21 of this year. I'm still getting used to saying uh, 21 now. Before we go into the live section, I'd just like to talk about our assessment. So our assessment helps you work out if you're going to have a low or high seven figure business in 2021. You go to paulhigginsmentoring.com forward slash assessment. And there's 15 questions that you can probably cover off in three minutes. And then at the end of that, it's not like any other assessment where it's a nice tick in the box. We actually give you your results and I have a specific call with you based on your results. I have a call with you and give you a plan. And also, if you're at the top, you get a great chance to be on this podcast like David has. So um, just go to paulhigginsmentoring.com forward slash assessment for that. So the live section next, David. So what are some daily habits that you do every day to make you successful? Probably the most important one is when I go to bed and when I get up. It's something that I ultimately two years ago and I go to bed at eight o'clock and I get up at four. Wow. And the reason I do that is at four o'clock in the morning, whether I accept it or not, my brain is going a thousand miles an hour and I can't stop it. So what I did for most of my life was convince myself in bed to go back to sleep. Yeah. And then I would just be more tired when I woke up because I go into another phase of sleep and it was just, and I was lethargic all day. So the, the most important thing I do is getting up at four. I have a reasonable regiment in the morning. I'll play my guitar for an hour. I'll do all my emails, but I, I try to get some work in, try to write or do something for a client. But definitely mental health is part of that in the morning. And then another thing that would be definitely characteristic of me is my whole life, I've actually been very neat. Everything has a place. Everything is in its place. If my room or my office is a complete mess, it's typically because my head is a mess. It's a direct reflection of what's going on in here. If my whole office is clean, but there's a couple of cupboards empty, it's literally a metaphor because I haven't got there yet. So I'm hiding something in here. So it actually is very connected. So definitely being neat, organizing, structuring understanding what I want to do, laying it out and going about it and making a list and checking it off. That's definitely how I do everything. Yeah. And I'd love, you know, I, I'm i a sort of 5.30 a.m. guy. Most of my calls with the U.S. and being down under, it, or yeah. sorry, I should say North America, not just the U.S., down under, yeah, makes, yeah. you know, early starts. But I, but I really struggle to get to sleep and it's happening. As I get older, it's getting later and later. So maybe just a couple of tips. So 8 p.m., like how do you get to sleep at 8 p.m.? 
You know, I don't know what it is, but I could fall asleep on the couch right now. Like I'm a good sleeper and usually a heavy sleeper. So for me, I notice like that I have this regimen. My body is used to it and I can tell myself what time to wake up. I can pick a point in the night and say, wake up at two. I'll wake up at the clock. It's like 201. So for me, I don't have any tips because for me, I just go to bed and I just, just knock it. right out. It's very rare that I stay up and think. And it's typically because I'm up since four. So I know between seven and 7.30, I do a nosedive. I can feel it coming on. My brain just start goes to mush and I, I'm in a nosedive at about 7.30. So so what happens you know, on the weekend, you go to a party or you go out to a restaurant, et cetera? Obviously, you're not going to fall asleep at eight. Do you still get up well, early? In, in 2020, there was none of that. But um, <laughs> in, on the weekends, like Friday nights, Saturday nights, typically I will stay up and watch a movie with my wife and things like that. So I'll just be a bit more cautious Friday morning. Like I might sleep in a little bit more Friday morning and get up, at, you know, get up late, like at five thirty, like you or six. Yeah. But then I will just alter it a little bit. So I'll stay in bed a little longer just to buy those hours at the end of the day to watch a show. But seriously, if I watch a movie on a Friday night, it's pretty common for me to fall asleep halfway through. Yeah. Well, look, when Even I had- Even if six, I try to stay up. Yeah. Well, when I had 6% kidney function, I was sleeping at any moment. I yeah. Bet. So I yeah, bet. it was challenging. Now, I'm, oh, you know, I've got full kidney ball. As good a kidney function mm-hmm. as I'm going to have, and that keeps me awake a little more now. Yeah. So we briefly mentioned Sandy. We've spoken about her a couple of times, but- she's watching this right now what would you love to say to her about the support she's given you through this journey oh you have to start with the cliches i mean i literally wouldn't have what i have without her and you know it's interesting like without with where we've gone with our ideology and all of that she's the engine inside of the pretty car that makes it all run and not just as a metaphor i mean where she's actually now on the book cover where if on this book cover it's just me and the mirror but uh if you go to my website she's now the third person on there because she adds so much value to everything we do but then when it comes to the life we have the daughter we're raising the way we want to raise her and, and how we want to live i think we've really pulled off something amazing that, that works for us and makes us very happy and then she's really I don't know if many women could be married to me, but she's pulled it off well. Brilliant. Excellent. So the next section's about a community or charity that you support. I call it the give section. So I know we spoke prior that it's probably a community. So once Mm. again, under a beer, because we are, you know, getting close to time. Uh, What would you like to mention in this section? When I start, okay. So when I started my business, I had already done three years as a marketing director in a high-tech company. And I waited from when I, the day I started Living Blueprint to the day I went on stage was eight years, plus three years of working as a marketing director. So after 11 years of learning, practicing and doing business, then I decided to go on stage. And the reason was in those 11 years, I went to a lot of speakers and I found that there were a lot of speakers that I really didn't feel were good enough. And it's not that I'm elitist or anything like that. It's just, you go to a speaker, I want to learn something. I want to be taken back. I want them to know their, I want them to know things that I simply could not possibly know. And I found that a lot of speakers are doing it because it's good for their career. Their boss told them to, it's a good opportunity. There's that. Then there's also people that they have good content, but they're terrible speakers or they're brilliant speakers and they've got nothing to talk about. And I was fed up with all of it. So I was literally on the toilet one day and and also the technology part, you know, the first 10 minutes of most most presentation is people trying to figure out how to make the technology work. Like, I don't want that. Yes. So on the toilet one day and I thought, what if I go on stage with an artist and the talk is a metaphor 
and I don't script it because I know it. That was my test to me. If I know what I'm doing, I shouldn't need to script my talk, but I need to outline a metaphor. Then I come up with an image for the metaphor. So then I hire an artist to paint or draw the metaphor as I'm on stage. So no presentation, no technology, and it's testing me. Do I actually know my stuff? Great. Going to do it. So then I thought, well, I can't have two people on stage at once because I built a stage. I built a traveling stage that I can take apart and put back together. Well, how am I going to erase another human being off stage? For some reason, reason I decided to put them in a full body leotard, head to toe, white leotard, same as the backdrop, hence the, ter the term leotardist. And go to my living blueprint and click on the videos. You can find it there. And it was fantastic. So the first, the drama of it was amazing. So what we did was I would get it. Nobody, we never told anybody, even the organizers. So I'd say, okay, you know, here's my bio, read this, play this video of a client saying we're great and then introduce me. So the first one we did, there's about 150 people there. We're backstage. We had no idea what was going to happen. And I hired this fellow to do it. And he puts the thing on, he's like, I can't see. So we took scissors and cut his eye holes out, which <laughs> makes it look even better. And I'm like, these are the eyeballs. It was packed. So I said, okay. And we were at the back of the room. They introduced me and I said, you go walk through the crowd silently. Don't say a word and touch people as you go by grab them, pull them, walk up on stage and just start drawing and don't say anything. And it was always the same, hysterical laughter, weird laughter of what the hell is going on and then silence. And as soon as it went silent, I'd march through the crowd and just start my talk and never acknowledge the leotardist. And the thing that happened that we didn't expect was this visceral experience for the crowd where because they don't know what's going on, but they know something's happening, they witness the artwork being built on stage. And at some point, 10 to 15 minutes in, they realize it's a metaphor. So the feedback we got is people kept checking with that, listening to me. And as the picture came through, they were actually a part of it being made. So it was actually a really visceral moment where we all connected and it worked way better than we ever dreamt. It's, it's actually really amazing to see and do. And if I ever do a TED Talk, I want a leotardist on stage painting with me because it changes the game. When the metaphor lands and I talk around it through the ideology, it's really a game changer. It's really fascinating. Brilliant. Well, I think, you know, as you said, go to livingblueprint.com. Yes. And you will uh, see some examples that are not, and I've got to have a look because I, yeah, reading your LinkedIn profile, I'm thinking, what is this? I had, had no idea. So, uh, so that's fantastic. Yeah, you got to go to the YouTube link at the bottom and then you can find them in the videos, but there's a bunch on there and they are fun. Great. So the last section is the action section, and I really do need some rapid fire answers yes. from you here. So the first one is, what are your top three personal effectiveness tips? I think we kind of covered that. Getting up early, but really, if we get rid of all of that into the ideology, it's once I learned how I operate, what I like to do, and capitalizing on that, for me to be truly effective, it was first deeply understanding what makes me tick. What is my endless source of energy and thought and discipline? And doing that. Once I had that, everything changed. Before that, it was like, oh, I've got a hundred things to do today. So it really, it's that understanding deeply who I am, which is exactly what our process does. I selfishly built it to figure me out. That's what it is. And the next is uh, what's a piece of technology that's essential for running your business? You know, oddly, the Adobe suite of products. <laughs> Okay, great. Because and building all the stuff that we have to build, like I'm very hands-on and building things. So that really is my crutch at this moment. Great. And what's your best source of new ideas? YouTube and reading. Great. And the last question is the biggest one. And I'll leave it to the yeah. end for that reason. But what impact do you want to make on the world? 
Abraham Maslow, 60 or 70 years ago, said 2% of the world is self-actualized. That's what he predicted. And there's a lot of evidence around that. What we're going to push with our book and our methodology is we want to change that number. We want to influence that number. Because of the way of what we built and how it thinks, how it operates, it does breed self-actualization. So our aim is to actually do our best to influence that number and have more people and organizations self-actualize. Wonderful. So it was an absolute joy having you on. Quite Thank a, you very much. You know, a very, I think a lot of people still haven't answered that question. So if you go to Monster, your billion dollar ideology, uh, when it comes out, I think that'll definitely help you. Go check out everything that David's got on uh, livingblueprint.com. And uh, David, thanks for being so giving on uh, this, oh, you're welcome. Thank this you podcast for, today. For conversation. Brilliant. Yeah, thank thanks, you David. Much. It was brilliant. Thank Cheers. You. Bye. I really enjoyed that interview with David and I hope you did as well. And he just mentioned casually off air that Amir, his business partner that he spoke about during the podcast, was actually one of the key people behind Mind Valley and the success of Mind Valley. And actually in the book, so Monster, your billion dollar ideology, a lot of that is actually what Mind Valley used as their core ideology and principles. So that was something huge, which I didn't mention on the show, but uh, it's something and another reason why you should look at the book. So all the show notes are fully transcribed. So you can just go to paulhigginsmentoring.com forward slash podcast. So you'll get those there. You know, I'd love to know your key takeaways. Why not mention David in those takeaways that you share? So just share, you know, livingblueprint.com. Also, you can get the assessment to find out if you've got a high or low seven-figure service-based business in 2021. Just go to paulhigginsmentoring.com forward slash assessment. Please take action to build, live, and give. Thanks for listening to the Build, Live, Give podcast. If you like what you heard, please share it and leave us a review. It would mean the world to us. 